Uh, Our text this evening is from Ephesians chapter 3. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles there to God's Word. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 977. Now, as we look at this chapter from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, if you'll recall, uh, the book of Ephesians is divided uh, very nicely into these very distinct and yet intricately connected halves. Uh, The first three chapters, if you'll remember, all focuses upon the indicatives of the Christian life. Paul has been going on and on throughout these chapters, writing about the glorious nature of the gospel, speaking to us, the believer in Christ, helping us understand our identity and what it means to be wrapped up in union with Christ. In our senior high Sunday school class over the last several weeks, we've been talking about this biblical interpretive grid, especially when you get to the letters of Paul. It's more clear in Paul's epistles probably than elsewhere in which the believer is already, in a sense, raised with Christ that because of our union with Him, we are already renewed in Him, so that when Christ rose from the dead, the believer in Christ rose with Him, that as He sits enthroned on high, we are already with Him. And so we are already possessors now, presently, of this life eternal and all the blessings that are ours because of our union with Christ. And so while we wait for the glorious appearing of our Savior, we could say that that future inheritance that awaits us is something that's never in doubt because it is grounded and it is secured in the finished work of Christ. So just as certain as Christ rose from the dead, we can be certain of our place with Him in eternity. This is why these historical events of the Christian faith are so important that without the resurrection of Christ from the dead, there is no hope for anyone. And yet because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead, there is great hope for the believer, regardless of whatever circumstance and trial may enter into our lives. It is a hope that transcends all struggles that we experience throughout this life. And so it's, it's all of this identity language that Paul has been instructing the church in Ephesus about in these first three chapters that the more they understand what Christ has done for them, the more they understand who they are in Him, the more they understand what awaits them in the future as the church, as God's people, the more that they become grounded, you see, in this biblical perspective of reality, the more they will be enabled to endure in hope, in trust, and in perseverance. So tonight, as we finish up this first half of Ephesians, we'll look at chapter 3 in its entirety, And we could think of these three chapters sort of as a crescendo, building, thought after thought, sort of theme after theme, in which Paul strives to use words to capture for us the glorious nature of the gospel, who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. Christ has brought us out of helplessness, out of hopelessness, and he has saved us. He has redeemed us. He has taken us captive when we were once held captive in our sins and made us captive to himself, making us his own people, not, of course, because of anything within us, but only by his grace alone. And so the only proper response on our part as God's people because of this divine and and powerful working of grace in our lives, the only proper response is one of humility and one of great worship and praise to the Lord 
There's no place for boasting, no place for pride, no place for self-confidence. It's all of grace from first to last. And so as we move on to chapter 3, this crescendo of Paul continues to build throughout this chapter. He continues to be absolutely overwhelmed with the message of the gospel. That even as he writes, and we'll see this as we go throughout this text, he writes from a Roman prison. And even as he does so, he wants the church in Ephesus more than anything to be captivated by the love of God for them through Christ. He would rather them become overwhelmed with the love of Christ rather than his circumstances change. And we'll see as we read, but he would rather remain suffering in prison than to be let free if that contributes to an increased understanding on their part of God's love for them. And so what we'll learn as we go through this text is that God wants the hearts of his people to be captivated by his love for us. And as we grow to understand the amazing depth of the gospel, it ought to translate in our own lives into hope-filled expectations in every aspect of our lives. So let's hear now from God's Word, uh, Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the holy, inerrant, inspired word of the Lord. Now think for just a moment about all of the various types of problems and struggles that we might experience in this life. Maybe we go through periods of life in which we struggle greatly with discontentment. We know that God has power to change our circumstances. 
We know that He can change those difficult people that are in my life. We know that He can take those various trials that come into our lives out of our life. We know that He can provide more abundantly for our needs when we go through financial struggles. We know that He has the power to do all these things, and yet when He doesn't respond the way in which we think He ought, we are oftentimes tempted to quickly reason that He is against us. Or maybe we have anger, perhaps, within our hearts toward others. We experience conflict in our relationships with one another. The same type of conflict, perhaps, that continues to creep up over and again in the same relationship over and again. There never seems to be any lasting change. There never seems to be real resolution. And so we become filled with anger. Maybe we get discouraged because we don't feel like we're being listened to. Maybe we want life to be more exciting. Maybe this routine, mundane existence that we've sort of settled into as we age just becomes tedious and becomes discouraging. Maybe our life is too exciting, and frankly, we'd like it to be less so. If we were to explore all of the myriad of struggles that we encounter in this life, we could say that there is always a vertical dimension to the struggles, wanting to know why why these things continue, why things persist in our lives the way in which they do. In a blog by Ed Welch, he says that any version of a why question that we might pose to the Lord, why is God doing this to me, when that why question is directed to or about the God of the Bible, it is terribly risky. Even if it begins as a simple question, it gradually accumulates other questions about God's character and promises while it generates false assumptions about ourselves. Why, God, would you do this to me when I haven't done anything like this to you? Why would a good father allow this to happen to his children? If I were God, I wouldn't allow such things to happen. Questions like these will only lead us away from God. In order to avoid accusations toward the Lord and toward self-righteousness, Welch says that as you pray, use his personal name. First ask, why, O Lord? Speak to the Lord and everything changes. He is your creator and rescuer. You belong to him. He is both your liege and the love of your soul. Your response is praise, thanks, and humble requests. Ask in hope. He is the one who will deliver his people. There is no question that he hears and responds The only question is when our eyes will be open enough to see his mighty hand in action. Why, O Lord, takes our why questions and adds humility. How long, O Lord, this question considers our sufferings and infuses it with hope. And so as Paul writes, we could say, well, that's what he is doing. You see, constantly infusing his letter with truths, reminders about who our great God is. He is our Father who has blessed us. He is our beloved God who has redeemed us in His Son. He is our Father of glory who has given us new eyes to see now with clarity what we did not see before because of our hardness of heart. He is the powerful Lord who has put all things in creation under His feet. He is the one who is rich in mercy and who has made you alive in Christ Jesus. And it's this foundation of a proper understanding of the nature and character of the Lord that dictates everything else in life. If we were to move on and go in through chapters 4 through 6, 
we would see why this solid foundation of biblical truth and the nature of God's character is so important in learning to live with one another. Because the way in which we learn to live with others is grounded in our understanding of God's grace to us in Christ. This is why Paul spends so much time helping the church grow to understand the gospel before he even gets to the point where he tells the church, this is how you are to live in relationships with one another. Be grounded in gospel truth, grounded in, again, the indicative. They would be left without that indicative. We would only be left with spiritual moralism. But gospel-powered living flows from gospel-reoriented thinking. Now, there's this interesting aspect to Paul's writing that we pick up on here at the beginning of chapter 3. He mentions that he's a prisoner to the Lord, but he doesn't mention it in a way in which I think at least I would probably mention it. I would have a tendency to want people to feel sorry for me because of the circumstances that I have found myself in. It's for the sake of the gospel, after all. I'm suffering for the sake of the church. Wouldn't it be great if people told me what a great servant I am? But with Paul, he never dwells upon those circumstances. He doesn't try to gain sympathy or approval or recognition, but instead there's confident trust in the Lord that he is exactly where God wants him to be. And if his prison tenure helps the church to grow in their knowledge of the Lord and to grow in their understanding of how much God loves them, then he's all for remaining where he is. And from there, he reminds the Ephesians of his authoritative position as an apostle appointed by the Lord himself. He began his letter like this, stating that authoritative position, that he is one who speaks not under his own authority, but as one who is an apostle, divinely appointed. And he returns to that theme here, that as he writes, he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason that I think this is important for us is because we as God's people need to be reminded of the sufficient avenue of communication that comes from our covenant Lord. You see, think about this for a moment. God could have chosen any form of medium to communicate His truth to us. He could have taken the truth of the gospel and sort of downloaded it directly into our minds, maybe like a cosmic flash drive. He could have captured the death and resurrection of Christ upon a video so that all we would have to do each week is gather as God's people and watch those historical events again and again. He could speak directly to each one of us if he so desired. Any of those are certainly possible since God has infinite power at his disposal. But instead he has given us his word through the prophets and through the apostles. Now, when we think about the written word, it's really not very spectacular, is it? I mean, we live in the time in which we live, we live in a visual age in which tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars are spent by Hollywood to tantalize our senses, to appeal to you, the consumer. And so it's a struggle for us at times to give proper and careful attention to the words of Scripture. We come to weighty and difficult portions of the Bible like the letters of Paul, which require us to wrestle with Christological truths and to work diligently and thoughtfully and intentionally at application. This is not always an easy thing to do because everything else in our life is so visually oriented. This is why you see so many churches in our own time resorting to means that try to make the gospel more digestible to us when we resist the word. 
maybe trying to dramatize it a bit more or add more visually stimulating elements. There can sort of be a mindset that, yeah, the word was sufficient at one time in history, but we live in a different age now. It's just not enough. Maybe there was a time when the gospel alone through the words would alter people's lives, but it requires much more than just words in our own time. But none of those things, of course, have caught God by surprise. God has given us His Word, and He has chosen this format to communicate His truth to us. And there's just something unique about the written Word. It appears to our sight as we read the truth together upon the pages of Scripture. It is objective in nature because we're looking at the same words together. We use our lips to read those words aloud. Our ears are engaged as the word seeps into our thoughts. Our reason, the use of our minds, is engaged. The affections of the heart are appealed to. The word is much more effective than we oftentimes give it credit. The word requires effort, effort on our part, that we pour over the pages of Scripture, allowing it to sink deep into our hearts. So when we come to God's Word, when we come to worship, when we read it and study it on our own, we could say that really what we need is we are the ones that need to stop talking, and we need to listen to the Word of God. We need to be quiet. We need to listen. We need to do what the psalmist instructs us to do, to calm and quiet our souls, to know that the Lord is God, to know that He is the one in whom there is great hope. So when we come to God's Word and when He speaks to us, we need to calm our hearts before His truth. We need to lay aside that endless internal monologue, those things that so easily distract us from giving careful attention. We need the truth of the gospel more than we need anything else in this life. And so what God's Word calls us to do is to calm ourselves, to be attentive, to engage our hearts and minds and to bow in humility before Him. And this, you see, is what Paul is implicitly teaching the church here. Listen to the good news of the gospel. Listen as it is presented to you on these pages as I write with this authority. The word of God comes to you and it is passed on through the holy apostles and the prophets. Dwell upon the magnificent nature of the gospel. And note again the transforming nature of the gospel in Paul's own life. We know that prior to God's grace coming into Paul's life, we know that he was one who was a persecutor of the church, of course. He was zealous, but he was zealous for false truth. But as God's grace intrudes into his life, changing that heart of stone into a heart of flesh, he becomes one who is a persecutor of the church to one who will now die for the sake of the gospel. It's a pretty amazing thing to think about that he goes from such hatred and yet reverence in the eyes of the world for his great education and his great achievements and accolades to now being one who is in prison for his faith in Christ, willing even to lay aside his own freedom if the gospel could be expanded and spread around uh, this area of Asia Minor. It's the gospel that gives Paul new direction. It's the gospel that gives him clarity It's the gospel that gives focus. The gospel helps Paul understand his purpose in life. Again, he mentions that he is in prison in verses 1 and 14, but he does not dwell upon those things, on those hardships. 
And as we think about our own life for a moment, think about your own tendencies and how you tend to react when hardships creep into your life. We typically have a tendency to be overly focused upon ourselves, don't we? We tend to be filled with self-pity. When we have hatred in our hearts towards other people, we want those closest to us to come alongside and hate those whom we hate. When we're down in discouragement, we don't always want to be brought up from that discouragement. We would rather others to just come down and sort of wallow in that self-pity along with us. It feels good for others to focus upon us as much as we like to focus upon ourselves. And if this was the time for self-pity in Paul's life, certainly this would be it. Certainly he could write to the church and say, well, at least you have your freedom. The food here is awful. I'm chained to a Roman guard. He's mean. He's kind of smelly. He could make them feel guilty for the freedom that they have. At least you're free. At least you have some great freedoms to gather together and to worship the Lord. But he only mentions his condition, again, in the hopes that they would come to a greater understanding of what Christ has done for them. His life is so transformed that he moves away from that tendency of self-pity towards praise, focusing upon the glorious nature of Christ. And so when we found our, find ourselves being filled with self-pity, no one knows how hard my life is. No one understands me. I have it so much worse than anyone else. No one knows what I'm going through. What we need more than anything is to see more clearly the amazing grace of God, that Christ would die for me. We're saying this earlier together this evening. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And what amazing love, you see, that reorients our heart. And a heart that is captivated by the love of God leads to a servant's heart, as we see in Paul's own testimony. Freedom to live confidently, even here in a prison, because of the great love of God displayed in Christ. And the thing that gives him such great delight you see, is this mystery of Gentile inclusion that we talked about some time ago when we looked at chapter 2 of Ephesians. That the work of Christ would have such wide-sweeping efficacy that those from all the nations of the world would be brought in and be recipients of God's grace. That that dividing wall of hostility that separated people would be removed and that a new people would emerge unified around the gospel. Paul is filled with such great joy that God would reveal himself through the Apostle Paul to the people to convey this truth. That this one plan of redemption, this one hope in Christ, this one gospel that is made manifest to all the nations of the world is now made clear. This is what fills his heart with joy. And so not only does the gospel have life-transforming power... But as the gospel transforms our lives, there is a particular calling that results. In other words, as Christ comes and changes our hearts, removing that hard-heartedness, he takes away that status of when we were once rebels against him, and he renews us. And now because of this gospel renewal, Christ, rather than self, is to be at the center of our lives. Just as the gospel you see renewed Paul, and we see that evidence in his own life. We could say the same for us, that we are to live faithfully as God's people. We don't live 
any longer with an agenda for personal happiness and our own comfort. When trials come into our lives, the focus ought not to be simply upon the alleviation of such discomforts, but instead with a desire to serve. Not an inward focus, but an outward focus to serve Christ, to serve His church, to serve those whom God has placed in our lives. Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. He says, What we make of the situation in which we find ourselves depends largely on our perspective, or more exactly, on how Christ-centered our thinking is. Now think about what Ferguson is saying here. It's not our circumstances that dictate our life, how we live our life, but it's the perspective of our minds and hearts that gives us such great freedom to see with this Christ-centered clarity. Now think of any circumstance, any, any uh, circumstance for a moment. I'll, I'll give you a hypothetical situation uh, which may or may not have occurred in our portable buildings on the uh, west side of the church property on a Wednesday evening perhaps. Let's say that you were there with your friends gathering. You happen to be middle school age. And your friend spills uh, a soda on your lap. Now, you can either approach that circumstance with a self-centered perspective. I can't believe what an idiot you are. You're so clumsy. Or filled with self-pity. That was the last soda that was there on the table. Now I have to walk all the way over to the other building and get water. Or, what Paul is advocating here, a Christ-centered perspective. Where we think to ourselves, it's just a soda. It's not as important as a living person. I've done a lot worse in my own blatant sin against God. And He's forgiven me. In fact, you know what's amazing is that God, in His sovereignty, has allowed this soda to spill right now. He cares about me so much that He would show me my sin and my tendency toward self-pity. Wow, God loves me and cares about me that much. We could call that a Christ-centered focus. Certainly not something that comes natural. Certainly not something that is our tendency. And yet exactly what Paul is advocating. This is how practical that Christ-centered living is. To live with Christ at the center truly changes everything in our life. It changes the way that we view people, the way that we talk about others, the way that we think about others. It changes the way that we give uh, those those, uh, pursuits of our hearts to, the things that we value. Christ at the center changes everything. And to live with such a perspective is only possible as we understand the glorious nature of the gospel and our calling that results. Now last, let's look briefly at the application of the gospel in verses 13 through 21. In verse 13, Paul tells the church not to lose heart because of his suffering for them. As we think about the effect of suffering on our own lives, again, we want suffering typically removed as soon as possible. And we have that tendency to plunge into self-pity when suffering comes. But Paul says here, do not lose heart over such suffering. And again, this comes down to his perspective. Are we allowing suffering to capture our heart and lead us astray? Do we see God as distant and uncaring? Or do you see God as active and as loving, even in the midst of such hardship? And notice in verse 14, Paul's response 
as he takes, we could say, the truth of the gospel on the one hand and the reality of suffering on the other, and he takes them to the Lord in prayer. He bows his knees in humility before the Father. The reality of hardship in the world drives him to pray. And as he prays, notice that it's not a prayer asking the Lord to remove those hardships from his life. Not asking God to change his circumstances, but instead it's a prayer that's filled with delight in who the Lord is and what he has already accomplished by bringing redemption into his life. Again, Ferguson says that his kneeling is not a formal religious habit, but the deep instinct of someone who senses that the only appropriate position before this great God is to lower oneself before him in admiration and in awe. And so we could say that as Paul prays, there is humble confidence in his prayer. Humble because we know where we've come from that we've been transferred from that realm of death in which we were enemies towards the Lord. We remember that we were hopeless and helpless and confidence because we know now that He hears us through Christ. Just as we heard this morning from Hebrews chapter 1, we can have that confident and that bold expectation that as we approach the Lord in prayer, He hears us, He is active, He is our Heavenly Father, and His Spirit is at work within our hearts. And then in verses 18 and 19, again, we read that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so here Paul is dwelling upon the vast nature of Christ's love for us, his people. And why do we need to be strengthened in our understanding of the love of Christ for us? Well, if we need to be strengthened in it, it's because we have a tendency towards weakness. We are forgetful people. We become a narrow-minded people, forgetting the great love of God for us in Christ. And we will never grasp the depth of Christ's love for us, as Paul even struggles here. You can sense it in these words to capture the depth and breadth and height and length of the love of God for us in Christ. As he writes elsewhere in Galatians 2, I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or in Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In speaking on these verses, someone has said, God's love for his people is as long as eternity past, so wide as to include all nations, so high as to ring praises from angels in heaven, and so deep as to cancel the claims of hell on our soul. Knowledge of such magnitude grants more than comfort, more than assurance, and even more than joy. Knowledge of this magnitude is power. And it's the love of Christ for me in the gospel, you see, that motivates me, that compels me, that drives me to hate the sin within and to long for obedience. How many times do you talk to your friends about uh, the Christian faith and they interpret it as something that is so oppressive for them, all of the rules and all of the things that God requires of them to do? And yet here, Paul cannot stop talking about the great love of God for us in Christ. 
Now, the message of the Christian faith is not, of course, one of oppression, as you know, but great freedom that we have because of how much God loves us. And it is that great love shown to us that is the great motive and the only motive for true and lasting change. Again, in verse 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And as Paul closes this section, he's making this pause as he moves from that exposition again, on who we are as God's people because of our union with Christ, and then moving on in chapter 4 into application of those principles. And it's a great time to pause, to take a deep breath upon the grace of God through Christ that will enable us to apply those things in our relationships with one another. This can be best expressed if we think of it sort of as a series of ascending ideas. God can do. He can do all we ask. He can do all we ask or can even think of asking. He can do more than all we can ask or can even think of asking. He can do more abundantly than all we can ask or even think of asking. He can do far more abundantly than all we can ask or ever think of asking. The only power for lasting change in the Christian's life is not that I feel guilty and that I need to try harder, but only that I see with greater clarity the loveliness of Christ, a Savior who provides His life for ours, that His life is mine, that my identity is His. Our tendency oftentimes, so often in our lives, is to measure the dimension of God's love by what we see or know from our own experiences. Instead, We must measure His love, not only on the basis of the person and work of Christ, but on what is revealed to us in the truth of His Word. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we thank You for Your great love to us, a love which is made most clearly in the sending of Your Son, that because of that great love, You were motivated, You were compelled Uh, to send Your Son to die for us as an atoning sacrifice for sin. May we as Your people grow to marvel at the great and glorious sacrifice of our Savior for us. May our hearts be filled with greater love to You and therefore greater love towards one another because of the love of Christ for us, in whose name we pray. Amen.